0: I would define divine love as the ultimate inclusiveness. And wisdom is like the scales of justice, you know? Wisdom upholds
1: divine love. Every way we show up in relationship predominantly, or foundationally I should say, our relationship with ourself, how we imagine ourselves to be, how we feel about ourselves, how we care for our physical and emotional self.
2: Welcome to Commune. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today we're exploring love and relationships. Now our understanding of love is complex and multifaceted. There is platonic love or love as its ideal form. There is biochemical love, like the oxytocin spurred love a mother feels for a newborn. There is patriotism or the love of country. There is relational love, either familial or romantic. There is love as passion, also known and felt as lust. There is love not as emotion, but as state of being, often defined by profound sensations of connection. Compassion, for example, the identification of someone else's suffering as your own can be a signature of this state of love. Now, the field of psychology has contributed to a deeper understanding of love, exploring attachment styles, the impact of childhood experiences on adult relationships, and the role of neurobiology in romantic relationships. And now more than ever, there is a growing emphasis on the importance of self-love, understanding that a healthy and positive relationship with oneself is foundational for building meaningful connections with others has become a familiar message proliferated by everyone from Instagram influencers to self-help authors. Now today's episode is a series of excerpts from conversations I've had about love and relationships, and not just the love and relationships that we forge with others, but also with ourselves. Now, first up is Danielle Laporte. She has been a longtime time Commune contributor on the topic of love and is a well-known author, speaker, and entrepreneur in the field of personal development and spirituality. In our conversation, we explore the concept of love in relation to virtue. Without further delay, I present to you Danielle Laporte on how virtues, like compassion and forgiveness, function as extensions of love. So maybe we could talk a little bit about virtue. Um, and, uh, because you, you, spend, um, some time in the book dissecting, uh, seven virtues, um, love, compassion, wisdom, forgiveness, loving kindness, resilience, radiance. And, um, uh, but first and i'd love to unpack how you understand each one of those things and we don't have to hover on 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 each one for forever but maybe as a starting place you could elaborate on how you actually understand virtue because i think you have an interesting spin on the concept of virtue itself
0: it's for me it's not a psychological conversation so this is not about morality it's not about ethics because those are even can be divisive. Those are constructs of the mind. Virtue is the higher consciousness. It's it. I like to think of it as divine love. We have these, these creative tensions, this magnetism, this you know, this pulse of life. It is divine love itself. And then I see all the virtues as the daughters of divine love. So, you know, visually it's like divine love is the light. It's this sun and all those rays coming out of that unique unto themselves, individual virtues. And so you can be compassionate. It's an act of love. You can be forgiving. It's an act of love. It all, everything, everything high vibe gets back to the V vibe.
2: I think this differentiation is important because we're living in an era where there's a lot of signaling around virtue. Yes. Um which
0: I'm okay with by the way. We need to I mean, be okay I, with what we judge as virtue signaling. Right. Can I can I unpack that? Please. Okay. Your virtuousness is between you and your soul. It is not for anybody else to say where it's coming from. It is, um, who can judge how you let the light of consciousness work through you? you? You can't. And the fact that anybody would stand up and say, that is not loving enough. There is a motive underneath that. That needs to be questioned in and of itself. Are you not loving enough that you can sit back not judge, or just let it unfold as it will. Hmm. I think when we, yes, there's some of us who have the lucidity, the wisdom to say, okay, that's performative. That donation is just for a tax write-off. They're just halo polishing. Sure, it's happening all the time. Let them do it. Let them do it. Because sometimes when we fake being loving, we start to realize what love really is. And I think with virtue, with, with consciousness, we're all playing with different degrees of consciousness. So like, you know, just just play, just pretend to be compassionate. See what happens. See how it feels. And you go, oh, wow, hmm, that kind of felt good. And I got a thank you note. And I slept better that night. Okay, play with a little more. Oh, and then you will get, wow, I was faux compassionate. Now I'm really compassionate. And then I think there are some, there are, there are some of us who we just hit our strides with a particular virtue. And when you really are being the virtue, you don't even know. Someone can say to you, wow, you're so compassionate. And you, you know, and that person just kind of shrug and say, well, what do you mean? You're, they're embodied, Yeah. So enough with the virtue signaling, canceling, that's what I'm really trying to say.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, the Tao has a fantastic, um, exposition on on virtue. Um, and, and really has a very, um, an understanding of virtue much more similar to, to yours, I believe it's not, tied to um, relative morality or ethics really they are states to be embodied and most often being virtuous is actually moving with nature's course Uh, and there is a refined and intuitive skill to it it's not just a complete surrender though sometimes you can move down the river with greater ease if you just let yourself go limp. (laughs) But it is actually an application of the rudder such that, you know, you're leveraging nature's way down the course of life. And, uh, and the Tao says great virtue, which is the, the T E in the Tao Te Ching is actually translated as virtue. But great virtue does not virtue signal so it is true virtue cheap virtue merely virtue signals so it's not virtue after all great virtue is spontaneous hence it is non-transactional cheap virtue is contrived and is transactional this has been a powerful lens for me during this time because you know you and i and everyone i mean our lives are very public um, and, uh, you know, the Serengeti of social media is, <laughs> is, is cool. <cruel>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, is cool. Influencers and the new
0: gladiators. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and, um, and so when I find myself, we, I mean, we have no choice, but into, to, but to be in nature's course, it's just happening. So. I mean, and you say this, I I mean, I, I, of course, when you write a book, it's yours, but then you like release it out into the world. People like me read it and it's not yours anymore. Now it's mine because I'm bringing my own, you know, thoughts to it. So I'm like overlaying, I'm sitting here reading your book and listening to it. And then I've got my tattered copy of the Tao Te Ching right here. And I'm like, oh shit, she's actually talking about the Tao right here. And you know, um, and so I mean, I think you you point to this in the book that we have no choice. I mean, we are in the current um, of life, and uh, and you know, are we going to swim upstream? And um, and that's surely the easiest way to exhaust ourselves and to drown, or are we going to become um, skillful in navigating nature's course and move with it. And, um, uh, so, and and there's great gratification in that. I mean, maybe we could talk specifically about compassion, for example, um, like what your understanding and experience of compassion is, because it's when you're there, it's, it is one of the most gratifying places to be.
0: I think compassion has a lot to do with mercy and how I define mercy is imagine that you and buddy commit the same crime and you get 20 years and you hope he doesn't get arrested at all. That's mercy. So it's like same degree of density, and you pray that they don't have to pay the same price. You're just really wishing that everybody catches a break. That's mercy. There's no self in there.
2: Yeah, there's um, a uh, Sanskrit word, mudita, which um, is often translated as empathetic joy but really the way I've understood it is the experience of joy, simply for someone else's joy. (laughs) And, um, and it's a very, uh, not that a spiritual journey deserves to be measured or gauged, but (laughs) sometimes I think about this and apply it to myself where, you know, I see someone achieve something great. And what emotion comes up? Am I just absolutely overjoyed for that person? Or is there a little voice saying like, that's a projection of your unfulfilled potential like onto that person and I feel envious or jealous, etc." Um, But I, I think when you well up with joy, or this also could be true for um, for tears or pain to identify someone else's suffering as your own. Um, when you have that experience where you are crying for someone else's suffering or you're high-fiving and jumping up and down with joy for someone else's achievement, that is a reflection of, connection of compassion for me.
0: I feel most, um, expanded and just cool when I'm mm-hmm. happy for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, I'm so happy for you. Yeah.
2: yeah with no strings attached.
0: No strings attached, <laughs> no judgment in there either. Like, you know, my shadowiness and that would, would be like, I'm happy for you and I hope you, you know, can keep it up because you could lose it or i you know, just all those judgment. No, I'm just happy for you. And I have faith that your success is going to expand you. Mm
2: -hmm. You talk about the experience of Uh, interacting with someone who's homeless, for example. And um, it brings up for me this word that I recently stumbled across called sonder, very simple word, S-O-N-D-E-R. It's um, the profound feeling of realizing that everyone, including strangers passing in the street, has a life as complex as one's own. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's a good word. Um, let's talk a little bit about wisdom. I think you do, um, a wonderful job dissecting the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So how about it?
0: This helped me let go of my own morning time striving anxiety Mm. Mm. is to realize that wisdom has nothing to do with knowledge, acumen, resume, research or data. And that how you know a wise person or a wise decision from an unwise person or decision is wisdom will always include everybody. So wisdom is always coming to the table to say, Okay, how can this benefit everybody or harm somebody? And that's how, you know, you go from there. It's really, I think, like, I would f- define divine love as the ultimate inclusiveness. And wisdom is like, you know, the the woman who's holding the statues of justice, the or the scales of justice, you know, wisdom yeah. upholds divine love. Like, okay, everybody is in, and I'm here to make sure we all know that. Let us proceed. And it, and it can happen. We know when we're in the presence of a wise person. It's Someone could be simple. They could be working in a factory. They could be digging ditches. They could be a guru. It also helps you when you, you carry on with this concept of wisdom, the virtue, really helps you see when there are people we have put on pedestals, you know, for me, more spiritual folk, that, I think, oh, that is not an inclusive teaching. Like, oh, he was being a little divisive there. Oh, that's not wise. Hmm, Got it, check.
2: It's completely not associated with how many letters might appear at the end of your name. Yes, Um,
0: or how many followers you have in your darshan, your temple, or your Instagram.
2: I think that um, there's a lot of humility that's associated with wisdom. Um,
0: Wisdom leads from behind. That's why it's um, just like, myself is equal to yourself. This is not about my small self trying to get inflated. This really is like, united we stand, divided we all fall. (laughs) Like, I think that's one thing we we lose in that concept. Like, united we stand. Yes, we got that. Divided we fall. everybody loses and when you realize that when you're wise enough to see like we only are going to get where we want to go together then it's not you You don't have this ideology like it's okay if they suffer a little bit and we've helped this community over no we all go it's it's what we're seeing online right now with what's happening in iran like none of us are free until all of us are free no none.
2: yeah I mean, it's so unbelievably inspiring what's happening in Iran. Fantastic. Look at the suffering
0: involved in that uprising. I mean, this is a beautiful occasion and this is easy to say for my apartment in Vancouver, but this is a beautiful occasion to see where, um, the, the, the meaningfulness in the agony.
2: Yeah. It's often posited that, um, failure begets experience and experience begets wisdom, but only if you're humble enough to recognize the mistake because, um, what's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the person with too much pride or hubris would, would double down and say, Oh, well, I'm just going to keep doing it over and over again. But the wise person actually Understands and acknowledges uh, his or her own deficiency or his or her own mistake and is humble enough to learn from it.
0: Yes, wisdom is always integrating. Wisdom is not predicated on life experience. We all know people who have traveled the world, built businesses, all the things, and are still, still ogres, right? So. Right. It comes through through love. So that learning from experience is an act of love. You bring the experience in, you apply some gentleness, it becomes a part of you. You get mm. wiser. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about forgiveness.
0: Oh, okay. I think it's the reason we incarnate. I think we are here, I think we exist on this planet in this dimension to forgive. And you know, my favorite kind of phrase over the last year is, hey everybody, (laughs) Uh, the heart is for giving, and then you give it a nice poetic pause and every, you know, you see the eyes light up and they go, oh, the heart's forgiving, the heart is forgiving. And when we are not giving of love, when we are not forgiving, we are not being our true nature. We're in denial of our power. And that being the case, like, I think forgiveness is actually our default. And we want to forgive. And I've had this experience myself where, you know, I was in a a car accident and it was the other guy's fault. My car was total and I walked away, but there's all these things to bring in like insurance and, and, you know, the person whose fault it is, their insurance goes through the roof and you know, it's not great. And I wanted to just let it go. I was okay. I was going to get a new car. Um, wasn't going to cost me anything. It's all okay. And I just felt so soft and beautiful about that decision. And uh, then I let myself get talked out of it. And I just felt dank and ugly. (laughs) Um, And I think we talk ourselves out of things in terms of forgiving all the time because of the contract or this is one of my least favorite words now is like accountability. We're obsessed with accountability. The (laughs) ego loves accountability structures for ourselves and others. Yeah, Because you're not good enough, you're not keeping up. You're right. You're wrong. You said you would do this and you didn't. And, uh, you know, forgiving is so much more fun.
2: Kind of transcendent examples of forgiving. I think that really, it tests us in a way. I mean, these families from the nickel nickels mind incident or from the uh, Dylan roof um, killings in the church in South Carolina where these families all got up and, and, and forgave a mass murder. And more recently in um, in Gabor Mate's book, um, he talks about this, uh, well, Edith Egger, she's a psychologist whose grandparents were killed um, in the Holocaust. And eventually she returns and goes to Hitler's hometown and, um, and forgives him. And I think this really, this really tests our mettle here around forgiveness. Now, yes, clearly forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself as much as it is a gift that you give others. It sort of, uh, purges toxicity and anger. It's like, you know, who's holding the ember of resentment? Well, you are, you're getting burned. So if you can forgive, you just throw that away. But, uh, but there's a tension between forgiving and that notion of accountability or justice. So is everyone in your mind deserved of forgiveness? Yes.
0: Yes, everyone is deserved. We all come from the same source. No one is outside of the fabric of love. And we live in duality. There is, um, we need to create conditions of healing. So if somebody is toxic and deranged, they are forgiven, they are loved, and they gotta go live over here so that they are no longer harmful to society like that's basically you know but everybody gets cared for that person gets cared for in the forgiveness the and the community gets protected um I think there is there's a conversation around anger and rage right so there's a place for holy anger and holy anger is like you are enraged on behalf of what's best for the collective that, you know, for me, all children everywhere should be protected constantly, no matter what. And that should be number one on every political educational medical agenda without question. Mm -hmm. And I have a holy anger that that is so not the case, but that rage is on behalf of uplifting, protecting compassion for humanity. Anger is You did this, you got to pay.
2: Yeah. It's a crime and punishment mentality. It's a punitive mentality. And this speaks to, um, kind of Abrahamic justice versus a restorative justice, like a restorative justice would is much more focused on the harm that was done on who was harmed. And how do we help make that person whole? How do we help the healing process? But, uh, we're very much geared around kind of the crime and punishment of the, the person that has kind of deviated from the orthodoxy. And as you say, absolutely correctly, we have to separate people that are antisocial and who are a threat. Um, and at the same time, I think our culture would be better served if we were more focused on on the person that was actually harmed, and then the redemption and rehabilitation, yes, rehabilitation. of the people that had done the harm.
0: Yes, and this so, is the darkness of so much. Um, well, some of you know social justice movements and activism is it's really it's. Um, It's unrained rage looking for payback. Mm. And that does not create progress as opposed to another option, which is we have a vision and we are going to get everybody in line with this vision, no matter no matter what, we will not stop. Um, But Mm. everybody's included in this vision and it is a it's a forward motion versus Let's just stand in the middle of this problem and duke it out. You
2: know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings us, I think, to a perfect bridge into loving kindness.
0: Oh,
2: what is loving kindness? You're on my feet.
0: Uh, well, loving kindness, as defined by Buddhism, is a warm friendliness towards all things. And I think this is the most powerful virtue for self-acceptance and healing mm-hmm. is that if you can just change the tone with which you talk to yourself and how you engage with your fear, like, you know, I write about in How to Be Loving, like, please, could we stop overcoming our fear or trying to overcome our fear? Let's have a loving kindness relationship with our fear. It's just asking for Mm. our attention. This wants to be integrated. Yeah. Warm, unconditional friendliness.
2: One way that you describe it in the book is an active interest in others. That's good. I mean, I think we, we know it as Metta, um, in Sanskrit, this sort of unconditional bringing forth of goodwill. Um, and, benevolence, but this, uh, I think the way that you point to this idea of taking an active interest in others, mm, that is very sweet. And it's, and you can see it in yourself. I mean, you, 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 you can see when you're doing it.
0: Yes. You can see it at a party. Now there's a shadow side to this. There's, you know, there's fake loving kindness. Like I'm interested. I want to know your story. There's all sorts of personality defensives defenses in there but um don't you just love people who are interested in you doesn't it just soften you this curiosity like we're all on the same page what's your story oh yeah you melt
2: To sum up, Danielle collectively presents a perspective on virtue, wisdom, forgiveness, and loving kindness that emphasize inclusiveness, non-judgment, and the transformative power of these virtues in personal and collective growth. It is not for others to judge where virtue comes from in an individual, and the act of judging itself may even indicate a lack of love next up is holistic psychologist and author, Dr. Nicole LaPera. In our conversation, we explored how our childhood experiences can shape beliefs and behaviors in our adult relationships. And then Nicole highlights the importance of paying attention to our body's signals in order to become better attuned with our hearts. So here you have Dr. Nicole LaPera. We generally when relationships are working we generally are trying to foist the uh, responsibility for change on the partner and then every once in a while we look back in at ourselves and be like wait i'm having the same relationship <laughs> over and over again who's the problem here <laughs> um and sometimes those uh, satori are, are hitting hidden in plain sight and I, I think you bring out that that in the book but it, it made me examine my own relationships um You know, as well. I mean, do you feel that most unhealthy relationships generally have their root in these early childhood trauma or adverse experiences?
1: Every way we show up in relationship, predominantly or foundationally, I should say, our relationship with ourselves, how we imagine ourselves to be, how we feel about ourselves, how we care for our physical and emotional self. And then, of course, extending outward in terms of how we're showing up and relating to and connecting to those around us has our root in those earliest relationships. I do believe the large majority of us as adults, I like to joke that I'm looking for the unicorn who came from a securely mm-hmm. attached childhood experience. And, and I joke though, there's meaning in that because the generations that came before us, especially those of us in our adult years, were very limited. They were limited in access to information. I mean, I think about and, and talk about often the reality that parenting advice for decades focused just on keeping the children physically alive. There was no awareness of emotional needs or emotional connection or self-expression. So parents were doing what they were many of them taught to do, which is just tend to the physical needs of an infant or a child, punish or reward their behavior and not think about anything else. And then beyond that, all of the different, you know, access or inaccess that has happened in terms of structural and political, and you know, not having financial resources and having traumatic things happen to groups of people. So we all come from ancestors or lineages that I th- that do not think has translated to very many of us, if at all, having modeled to us and experienced the safe and secure environment. So what we then do show up is in more dysfunctional or insecurely attached models of being both to ourselves and to others.
2: Mm. Yeah. That's so interesting. You know, I've often made this connection between um, well around like evolutionary mismatches, but mostly with physiological disease. So we have like an ancient genome, but then that's at odds with our modern culture. So that could be like the surfeit of shitty ultra processed calories or whatever it is. Um, And that we are simply, not evolved to manage that those that aspect of like modern human artifice. But uh, I haven't ever really made that direct connection, I think that you're making, which I think is fascinating, which is there is also an evolutionary mismatch with how our relationships function, where, you know, in hunter-gatherer days, you know, there's an African parable, like it literally, it takes a village to raise a child, right? Well, that's actually rooted in something that actually was true, (laughs) um, that the necessity of the tribe, um, you know, instantiated this, this group child rearing process. And through that, you know, we likely had, um, you know, a feeling of greater safety and security such that we could be our authentic selves. And now like we've, we've, we live in these little boxes and we've sanctified individualism and, um, such that, you know, the stresses of raising children, um, have created, I think what you're pointing to with is an evolutionary mismatch where, you know, so many of us, and I raise my hand, you know, have to really do these deep inventory and work to kind of unpack some of these pathologies around our relationship. So it's fascinating. Um, you talk about, in the absence of safety and security, um, that we begin to step into these alternate roles of ourselves, sort of this folklore of who we think we are. And you you outline some of these archetypal, uh, conditioned selves. Can you unpack that and, and maybe enumerate what some of those more like prominent archetypes are? Because I think people will be able to see themselves in that. I, I know I did
1: in childhood when we are, I mean, we're the, I think, if not the only one of the few mammal species that are born, not fully developed, we're still developing, we're actually developing Right. It's pretty mind blowing when I learned our brains, at least into our twenties. So, we need to really simplify what that means for us as humans. We need someone to care for us. We cannot care. We're not like most animals where, you know, they're, they're birthed. And I mean, some of the, you know, parents <laughs> leave and that's like yeah. oh, off on your own, out into the tundra you yeah. go, Godspeed. Um, and so, we need to be in connection. We need someone showing up in service of at bare minimum our physical survival. So, with that being the case, And with us being very attuned to the world around us, always trying to make sense of it, understand it, gather meaning from it, self-define based on it, we will, because we need those connections to continue our life experience, we will not, we do not A, have the emotional maturity to be able to zoom out as we gain into adulthood and understand all of the different complex factors that might be contributing to our caregivers presence or lack thereof or behaviors, whatever they might be. So we don't have that maturity. So we can't essentially assign any other blame. than it must be something we're doing or not doing that's causing our caregiver to act or to care for us in the adequate or inadequate way that they're caring for us. We're in what's called an egocentric point of view. We can't understand that it had nothing to do with us. It has Their own childhood, you know, that's contributing to it or their own financial circumstances or the fact that they're caring for several other of our siblings. It becomes about us. And in that state of dependency, we need to increase the likelihood that they still continue to care for us in some way, that they show up again in whatever limited way that they are able to show up. And that's where that process of modifying or adapting begins You know, all of those moments where we heard not to be a certain way, not to express a certain feeling, not to say a certain thing, right? Not to do a certain thing or what will the neighbors think? All of these ways or when we do something, it could even be more indirect and mom or dad or whoever the caregiver is explodes with anger or withdraws into the other room. All of this we're attuning to and we begin to take in that information and then modify ourselves to increase the likelihood that they continue to show up in whatever capacity they're able to.
2: Mm. God. Yeah. Yeah. And then these, these maladaptive patterns become such so entrenched right in our lives that they become part of, of like homeostasis management for us. So we almost like adopt subconsciously these maladaptive versions of ourselves just as a, as a mechanism to get through life. It's uh, I mean, I'm not looking for a free therapy session here, but like when I was a kid, I was very, very chubby throughout my whole upbringing. And I was moving internationally from country to country and, you know, new school, new language every six months or something. And all I wanted was a friend, you know, that was it. All I wanted was to fit in on any level. Of course, I didn't understand the difference between fitting in and belonging. I just was a kid, you know? So I was willing to essentially compromise my, who I really was to try to fit in, to try to connect in the group. And that became an internalized part of my behavior that I brought into 52 years, basically. And, um, it's only actually relatively recently that I started to unpack it. But, you know, I think one of the Uh, archetypes of the conditioned self is this you know what i think you call the yes person but for me i've always thought about it it's the people pleaser right where i just go through life essentially modifying every i mean this constant dance to be liked uh and to fit in and uh you posted something uh, on instagram recently which i thought was fascinating and Gabor Monte uh, refers to this in his book too, um, about people-pleasing and physiological disease, particularly autoimmune disease. Um, maybe you could just kind of poke at that for a second.
1: And when we go back to Jeff, the wisdom that you were sharing in terms of these ways of being, the selves, as I call them, conditioned cells, how they are wired into us subconsciously. I kind of refer to them as a neurobiological experience in our mind, all of the narratives created and maintained through our life experience, what so belief comes to be, who I believe myself to be repeated in my thoughts. And then the physiology mapped onto the shifts and changes in my physical sensations, oftentimes involving my nervous system, states of activation. And then very much like a homeostatic impulse, a pull back, we become so familiar even more problematically, so defined by these ways of being with the beliefs running through our mind and all of the fear of what happens if we're not that person mapped onto all of the familiar physiology and all of the fear of that being that person, all of the fear of not being that person in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And then we're stuck being that person. So the yes person, you know, I would map that onto a hyper vigilant nervous system where at some time, some place there was safety gained in as you moving around, needing to assess, well, what is this group of kids like? What, is, what are they going to accept? How can I you know, remain or become friends, as you said? So this nervous system that's outwardly scanning, looking, becoming probably highly sensitive to any shifts or changes in cues in the environment, and then just acquiescing or yesing, becoming, trying to fit in. For me, this conditioned self that I relate most to is what I call an overachiever. This idea created in my mind in childhood based on this experience of getting the attention that my mom was able to give me when I was achieving academically or athletically, coupled with a running narrative that I am not considered unless I'm performing in that particular way. Hmm. And then my body wired, familiar with what it is to be achieving things, right? Checking those boxes. Squashing down, suppressing all of my thought, my emotions, and my perspectives, right to try and be burden free or not a problem, right, not bring an emotional need like I wasn't able to in my childhood. Trying to think I'm being selflessly serving others, and in reality, I'm just so focused on this one aspect of my action as opposed to myself. On the other side of of the overachiever is an underachiever who might have a belief, again, created in an early childhood experience that it's safest or more, you're more securely connected if you're not, not like me achieving, if you're in the backdrop, if you make no noise, right? And then we embody that kind of timidity and that kind of repression of ourselves. We go into the background in all of our relationships. And a final one I'll just really quickly share because I think this is another common one is a, a caretaker, a caregiver, in childhood, if you were needed to be in care of your parents, your siblings, maybe even yourself at an early age, parentified. And now you become that same person across all of your relationships. Again, sometimes even uh, believing that that's what it is to be loving in a relationship, always self-sacrificing and giving to someone else. Um, And for me, there was a lot of, and one of my I hope one of the takeaways from any of my work, this book in particular, is helping us all redefine, first explore what our definition of relationship is and what conditioned way we're probably showing up in them, resulting in feeling disconnected, unfulfilled, maybe resentful oftentimes in our relationships and giving us a new definition of a more safe and secure connection and love so that we can evolve and teach ourselves. because that's the beautiful thing about our brain and body. These neural pathways That are very wired into our subconscious are also very changeable, with new choices throughout time. Yeah,
2: absolutely. This is the perhaps the most exciting part of 21st century medicine is that between the epigenome and neuroplasticity and the microbiome, like genetic determinism is basically waning. It's on its way out, and you know this is gives us tremendous agency, right, over our own um, our own journey. Uh, towards health and, you know, health in the broadest sense, you know, from relational health to physiological health to spiritual health, et cetera. So, um, you know, it's interesting as I was reading the book, Um, you know, I started to think about really try to unpack my own journey. And I think that's the amazing thing about books. They're yours until you press send, (laughs) then they're everybody else's book. You Um, so everybody's reading in to the stories that that you share and they're not just your stories in the book. There are other stories too. And, um, you know, I started to realize, yeah, I, I, because I was always trying to fit in and always trying to please that. I was never in this safe and secure environment, really, in my own neurobiology. And I I literally looked at the playground when I was a kid, but as society, as I became older, as a Serengeti, right? So I was like scanning the Serengeti, perceiving threat, and literally in my sympathetic nervous system, you know? So what do you do when you're always in that, you know, high cortisol state and, and, you know, you're your, your sort of aperture is very narrow and, you know, your heart is always beating and your glucose is always like flowing into your extremities or whatever. You're never in this place of peace and serenity and connectivity. Um, So maybe could you take a minute and explain sort of the relationship there between your autonomic nervous system, your neurobiology and the ability to forge healthy loving relationships
1: in addition to learning about epigenetics for me which came out of my clinical training which opened completely open door for possibility in my own life my own you know personal struggle with anxiety that I even field had had taught me up until that point that that was genetically determined and I saw similar habits and patterns in my family so why would I you know do anything but manage these symptoms for the rest of my life Learning about possibility and lifestyle and all of the different choices, including the gut microbiome and all of the ways that I was inflaming and continuing to keep my, my nervous system in that sympathetic mode that eventually led me to shut down and go into that dorsal state. Learning about my nervous system. Again, outside of being taught it, connect your brain to the rest of your organs in school, there was little else. And I'm hoping, and that as training programs are becoming more trauma informed and polyvagal theories, becoming a more frequent point of conversation that I'm hoping training has changed. So at my time, none of that was, was taught in terms of the foundational role that the autonomic nervous system plays in the entirety outside of, again, it runs your heart and your, your, you know, your organs and your, your blood flow and your breathing pattern and your digestion. It wasn't touched on in terms of what impacts it and what does that then create in our habits and behaviors externally. And once I learned that and then began to attune to my own body, because by that point in time, not having that emotional attunement, feeling consistently overwhelmed within childhood, a lot of health crises in the home, growing up in a city environment, even going back to really disconnected from our ancestral, you know, uh, in our environments, how we grew very unnatural, keeping myself exhausted, passing all of my physical limitations, was so disconnected from my body and my body went into that shutdown state, which added more insight into why I was so emotionally disconnected. And like I described earlier, I was, I was disconnected. That spaceship was one of those functions of that dorsal state of shutdown. So when we begin to pay attention to our body, as I know, again, wasn't a traditional part of conversation in my my training program, though, the more we attune to our body, the more we can begin to notice when we're in those different states of activation. And I truly believe the large majority of us are either cycling in and out of them, you know, consistently throughout a day, whether or not there's a actual objective threat present. And some of us remain stuck in some of these responses for for decades. Mm -hmm. We're in that dorsal state of shutdown and we cannot get out of it. So as we begin to understand what our body's cues are and what state we're in, then we can begin to make those intentional choices to shift ourselves out of them. So the three main points and areas that we can all begin to pay more attention to are our muscles, the state of muscle tension. Are my muscles tense? Am I even clenching maybe my fist or my jaw? Do my muscles feel at ease and ready to move if I desire or need to move, but I don't feel like I'm agitated or right clenching them or do my muscles feel so weak, heavy, fatigued, like I couldn't get off the couch if I needed to. Right. So when they're that kind of tension state is that sympathetic, that weak, heavy, cannot move state is that dorsal vagal state that shut down. My body is conserving energy is quite literally shut down. We can pay attention to our breathing. Is it quick and from the chest, indicating that sympathetic activation, right? I'm on edge. I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop. Is it coming from calm and deep and even in my belly? That would be that grounded state that we're ideally looking to be in. Or is it constricted? Am I holding my breath? Another one of those signals that I'm in that shutdown state. I would tune into my body, right? Noticing the weakness of muscles, a lot of tension around my midsection, bracing myself in that freeze mode of dorsal. And I'd be holding my breath a lot. And then we can begin to pay attention to our heart rate similarly, right? Is my heart rate beating, pounding out of my chest in that sympathetic overdrive? Is it more or or less my natural rhythm in that calm, grounded state? And is it imperceptible? Maybe I can't even attune to it, again, because I'm a million miles away Disconnected, and once we get get that clarity, now we can begin to see the behaviors that map on. Okay, well, what is my mind saying in these moments? What is the story that's connected to what's happening, creating that activation, likely? And then ultimately, what am I doing next? In sympathetic, am I hyper vigilant, waiting for the next shoe to drop, having an anxiety experience, or am I erupting and exploding? I call it eruptor mode. It's another way sympathetic energy can come out. I'm screaming. I'm yelling right? I'm I'm criticizing everyone around me when I'm noticing I'm in that dorsal mode, right? Am I distracting? Am I detached? Do I have, as I did for a long time, a faraway look in my eyes? Am I ignoring difficult conversations? Am I ignoring the people that are around me? I'm somewhere else entirely. And then we can start to see this interconnection between what I'm thinking, what I'm believing about myself, other people, how my body's feeling in terms of sensations, and then what I'm doing to try and cope with those sensations,
2: So good, Nicole. Um, so much there. I mean, we're just not taught this concept of interoception. So you bring that up in the book. That was like a huge aha for me or body consciousness. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm a very, uh, empirical person. I I know you, you talk a little bit about that too, about your past well and present as a scientist so you're looking for some good old fashioned enlightenment <laughs> rationality you know
1: I want to say it
2: <laughs> yeah. um, for me like I, I as I got on my health journey I started to you know look at all these I wear all these devices aura rings and continuous <laughs> glucose monitors and all these things because I was like oh well what I can measure <laughs> I can improve you know it's like very um, empirical approach to one's health and it, it was only actually when I got more attuned with, I guess, what one might call the subjective metrics of, of well being, of really actually trying to put my thumb on how I felt in, instead of just cognitively the labels that I put on it or the, you know, how many milligrams per deciliter my blood glucose was. I actually thought it was very interesting when I could start to merge the two, honestly, when I would like scan my CGM and all I, you know, I'd be like, whoa, I'm like in crazy peak glucose mode. How do I actually feel right now? There's so many ah ahas in the book, honestly, that I had, you know, one was just the nature of love itself. Um, I think so many of us associate love with passion And with a more kind of agitated sympathetic state, but actually truly, and this was elucidated beautifully in the book, it really does emerge from this parasympathetic state. And so that only underscores the importance of creating secure and safe environments for yourself. I want to get to the embodied self and what that means and and how we access it. So could you unpack that? Because I think for a lot of people, and even for me, that was a a difficult um, concept to grok at one juncture.
1: You, I think, beautifully even illustrated it in terms of first realizing um, I always will break Change transformation down into two steps, simplified. Of course, the first one is become conscious of of what's happening or not happening in any given moment, so that you can make that second step, which is new choices to do or shift or change or transform whatever it is that you want. And you, you Jeff beautifully illustrated it when you said, "I I notice I'm I like numbers, right? I like to kind of have this external think about, maybe even consume the content that teaches me the glucose number that I have to have, and right thinking, thinking, thinking." And I noticed that I wasn't able to, or I wasn't naturally or consistently shifted into marrying that with, oh, okay, well, this number is the objective representation of internally these sensations. And I'm saying that there because I do believe a lot of us in terms of the embodied self, we spend a lot of time disconnected from our physical vessel, our person, often for protective reasons, because it's safer to be thinking about things, to be reading books, sometimes even in ways that are celebrated or acknowledged as helpful right in our society, consuming information. Look at all the information we have available to us. There's a million different perspectives about each you know, subject you wanna think about in the analytic world or the psycho- psychological world. I think so a lot of times there's this, mis- this interpretation or idea that endless self-analysis is helpful while I'm engaging in my therapy practice. I'm thinking about myself. I'm observing myself. And if we're, again, only doing it in our minds, not to criticize any of you out there who's like, oh my gosh, I do this. Chances are you're doing that as as a protection. Because if you were to begin to pay attention to what's in your body, there might be some uh, uncomfortable, overwhelming sensations or emotions happening. So then we think we're doing something positive and we're saying protect it from our embodied presence, and again, that began likely at an early time or an early place where that was a helpful adaptation, thinking about things, getting lost in a fantasy world, reading all of the books, worrying about everyone else, keeping our focus away from our body helped us feel safer because there was too many overwhelming feelings that we weren't supported in in coping or in being with, and then allowing our body to naturally release them. So. The embodied state is that state of presence i mean consciousness is really i like to use the i don't know if it's an analogy or metaphor the you know picture of the overhead lights on in a room where i'm aware that's essentially what consciousness is and i can become aware of the thoughts in my mind i'm not hyper focused on them i'm not down the rabbit hole as i call it right i can't i'm just emerged when i started to even think about consciousness and teach about it in my first book how to do the work i realized how many people think were the thoughts in our head. We don't have any separation to say, oh, that was a thought I just had. And now I can refocus or unhook my attention from that thought and pay attention to the TV that I'm watching or drop into the body that I'm living in. So when I turn those overhead lights on, I can begin to choose and see what's going on in my mind and unhook and begin to then pay attention to what's going on in my body. And the reason why this is so incredibly important is because our brain or our mind and our body are in communication and it's a two-way street all day long. And this is why for so many of us who have tried affirmations until we're blue in the face, who have tried the gold standard of therapy, CBT, change your thoughts, right? Change how you feel, change what you do. Mind is powerful. I still use affirmations in my membership, Self Healer Circle. I still use them for myself. Though the other street of information coming up from the body unless we're in our body to see what messages it's sending. And just to give a quick example, in that childhood of stress, all of the stress in my body, being a hippie at heart, all I would proclaim that I want is peace and love and a moment to just relax. Right? I'm throwing out my peace signs right now. And in reality, in those moments, hypothetically, a Sunday, I had nothing to do. Nothing's going on. There's nothing. It's not always something. I'm in a moment of peace. I couldn't actually relax. I'd be cleaning the house. I need to do something, you know, I I can't relax until I'm done this last thing on my to-do list. I can't pay attention to the television or the movie I'm trying to watch with my partner or I'm bringing up fights. I'm agitating my my relationship with my partner. Why couldn't I relax when that's all I was attesting that I wanted? And the reason I couldn't relax or my mind couldn't relax was because those messages coming up from my body were not that I'm in that grounded state like where love, like that grounded presence, similarly that maps onto like what you're sharing about relationships, right? If that's not what we're used to and not having, and we don't have those moments in relationships, we do begin to define love as this passion, this high, this low, these fights, and then this great sex afterward. And we don't actually have a moment because the reality is we don't, our body is never relaxed. It's not reflected in our mind. So our mind will race with whatever our body is telling it.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I think we tend to believe that our thoughts control our feelings. That that's a kind of a monodirectional, a one-way street, Um, and kind of this top-down mentality of like, you know, something happens in the world, my mind puts a salience or valence on that, and then that goes down my HPA axis or, you know, into my nervous system or whatever. And then there's a neurotransmitter or hormonal thing going on. And then that's causing my heart to palpitate and, you know, my stomach to be uneasy or whatever that happens to be. And another one of the big awakenings, I think reading the book was understanding sort of the bidirectional nature of this highway where these, um, stored, uh, Neurobiological biolog- pathways are creating sensations in the body, which then percolate up to the conscious mind, such that the conscious mind has a thought of like, "Oh, well, I'm just not worthy," or "Oh my God, I'm scared of that," or "You know, I'm fearful of success or failure or whatever it happens to be." Um, and I think that that was a that's a really um, disruptive idea. Uh, uh, but I think it's, it's fascinating and uh, upon deeper inspection, I think it maps out as true.
1: Hand in hand with that, I know for me personally, when I read, I think it's Lisa Bartlett Feldman, I could be miss, 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 missing her name a bit, though she writes about um, something called the theory of constructed emotion. Well, let me pull back for one second. Learning that emotions are physiology in the body. They're a messenger, essentially an interface between how our body, our physical body, our physiological body is is experiencing the environment around us. They have important information in them, the core emotions, right? And they map onto physiological changes. That to me, because for some reason, I also had this idea that emotions lived in the mind right? uh, This idea of feelings, and I didn't necessarily understand that. No, that's that's shifts and changes in my neurobiology, my sensations, and everything in my body. And then learning about the theory of constructed emotions, which argues, and I believe it to be true, there's a lot of different theories of emotions and where emotions come from and what results in an emotion. But this one is the one that resonates most significantly with my life experience and with what I see in, in so many. And that is that emotions are individual constructions, right? They are not an objective reality, which the simple, you know, kind of lived example is when two people have the same experience and don't feel the same, right? If a door slams and I'm with someone who in their childhood, there was a lot of slamming doors or their parents barged in on them and they have a complete startle response jump out of their skin. And I simply go, Oh, I wonder what that was, right? We didn't both have the same, objective experience in that moment. And that's because emotions, right? The physiology of our childhood, then the meaning that many of us were taught to make of it, the stories we're telling ourselves is going to be then what contributes to that person saying, oh my gosh, someone's coming to get me or yell at me. And that's why they're jumping out of their skin and me saying, oh, a loud noise, interesting. Was that the wind? And not having that same interpretation.
2: Dr. Nicole suggests that if we're not also paying attention to the embodied self, the sensations, the emotions, the nervous system states, then we're missing a huge part of the conversation that's happening between our brain and our body. So accessing the embodied self so often starts with actually bringing awareness to the body it's about creating a connection with your physical experience rather than solely residing in the realm of thoughts and cognition. Now, it also allows you to respond to the signals your body is sending, fostering a more profound understanding of yourself and promoting a more integrated and holistic approach to your well-being. In the context of relationships, understanding and accessing the embodied self becomes crucial. It enables you to navigate emotions, communicate more authentically, and build secure and safe connections with others. It's a process of integrating both the cognitive and physical aspects of your being for a more connected and transformative experience. Now, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. Leave a comment to let us know your thoughts and don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I'm here for you.